Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 13 from Return to the Hiding Place by Hans Poulet. Chapter 13, At the Mercy of the Nazis. When I boarded the truck outside the police station, I saw nine other prisoners, Von Rigen among them, and I tried to talk to him, but a blow from the butt of a rifle made it clear that talking was not permitted. My worst fears were confirmed when we entered Amsterdam and the truck stopped in front of Gestapo headquarters on the Eusterpestrat. I looked at the small windows of the basement, the place of torture, and a shiver ran down my spine, but I had no time to think about it. The guards jumped off the truck, rifles ready, and escorted us inside. There, thank God for the Nazis' lack of insight, several large posters welcomed us. One was a picture of J.P. Cohen, one of the founders of our overseas empire, with his motto, Never Despair, in large letters. Further down the corridor, I saw a picture of the thoroughbred Aryan soldier with the caption, As long as I'm alive, I will not give in. The Nazis had posted it to reassure their own colleagues, but ironically, it provided unexpected encouragement to their victims. After a glance at our papers, the guard at the desk room marked contemptuously, Ha! All Jews! and directed us to the section for Jewish affairs. But on our way, a guard appeared unexpectedly and called my name. I stepped forward and was shoved into a large front room where a Gestapo officer sat behind a desk. Several stars revealed his rank. Are you Poulet, assistant minister of the Dutch Reformed Church? Yes, I lied, believing I needed to preserve this identity. Then he began intense questioning. Was resistance work my way of preaching the gospel? Was the Reformed Church not proud of its strict acceptance of the scriptures? Did I not know I was acting contrary to those scriptures? Did not Romans 13 command me to obey the rulers God had placed over me? I was astonished at his intimate knowledge of my background, but I soon learned he'd been a member of one of our congregations, which had excommunicated him because of his support of the Nazis. At a recent funeral, several old friends had even refused to shake his hand. He jumped up from behind his desk and began pacing. Here, this is my Bible now, he shouted and slapped a copy of Mein Kampf on my, his desk. He pointed to a picture of Adolf Hitler and bellowed, There is my fewer. He is the only one I believe. You Dutch Reformed people, with your resistance work, you aid your aid to those Jewish lice, your distribution of underground papers, and your praying for a queen who betrayed you, you are undermining our new European order. You're preparing the regime of the Antichrist. You're nailing Christ to the cross again. He was working himself into hysteria, and that worried me. 
Oh, you Dutch Reformed, he continued. Two out of five brought in here for resistance work are your kind, and I know. Here he lowered his voice and leaned toward me. I know we'll lose this war, thanks to your subversive activities. But then, Mr. Assistant Pastor, my, mind my words, you'll win this war, and on that day they'll hang me from the, that tree over there. But the day after that, Minister Assistant Pastor, you'll hang from that other tree next to mine, and my dead eyes will tell you then I was right after all. The communists will be the ultimate victors. I'm telling you this today, and you'd better remember and repent if you still want a chance to survive. Spent from his rage, he dropped into his chair, sounded a bell on his desk and turned away from me. His words actually encouraged me, however, for they vindicated all our resistance efforts. When a guard took me to where the others were being registered, they looked at me, their questions visible on their faces, but I couldn't talk to explain. From there, the truck took us to the prison at Amsterdam, where we handed over most of our personal possessions and received prison gear. Von Regen and I were sent to the same cell, already occupied by three other people who surrounded us and barraged us with questions. How is the war going? Has Rome indeed been liberated? Then, after we satisfied them with what we knew, they went to the prison phone and passed the latest war news to the neighboring cells via the central heating pipes. We were each given a straw mattress with a cover and a place on the floor. The seniors were entitled to the three bunks. Later in the afternoon, the guards pushed a meal of four thin slices of bread through the small window in the steel door and thus began weeks of gnawing hunger. I soon learned to drink a lot of water to avoid the misery of an empty stomach, and I learned the strict requirements of prison routine and how to avoid the harsh reprisals of the SD guards. It was only a place of transition, not my final destination, so I made the best of it. After the anxious days of solitary confinement, sharing a cell with several others, was a mental relief. Having someone to talk to compensated for my hunger and for the badgering by the guards. This part of the prison housed people arrested by the Gestapo for all sorts of reasons. Many of the young men had tried to escape forced labor in the German war industry. Some were resistance workers awaiting further interrogation or trial and sentencing they encountered for they accounted for the heavily armed guards and the many unexpected ex inspections the continual departure and arrival of new cellmates meant we had to adjust continually to an amazing cast and variety of characters and to their reactions to life in prison there were the quiet ones who usually hid in a corner or on a bunk with a book supplied by the prison library, and there were the talkative 
Amsterdamers who always had a good story or joke to share. One prisoner had a good voice, and in the evening he softly and wistfully sang songs of love or of a future free from oppression. Curiously, the days passed swiftly. We got a bread-and-water breakfast and a daily airing of ten minutes. Then, at noon, the main meal, which alternated between stew and blue William, the nickname for a concoction of a watery gruel of grits. Throughout the day, however, we lived with the fear of interrogation by the Gestapo or unexpected cell inspection and harassment by the guards. Evening was the most peaceful time when we had at least some privacy, but they were also the most lonely hours when I yearned for freedom and for my loved ones. Each, every other Friday afternoon, the Dutch Red Cross brought each prisoner a brown paper bag containing slices of nutritious wheat or rye bread, cheese or butter, perhaps sugar, chocolate or other sweets, and cigarettes. If the Gestapo didn't withhold them as punishment for some trivial offense, the packages were the highlights of my stay in that prison and did wonders for our morale. Many times I blessed the Red Cross for that invaluable and visible signal of hope. Early one morning, toward the end of March, I heard the usual noise of the gangways, doors being opened and shut, names and commands being shouted, but this time I also heard my name, Polay, Mit Mitkemen. I had little time for farewell. I grabbed my gear and lined up with the others outside our cells. I was being transferred, but where to? Soon the whispered word passed down our ranks, Emsfort, and when I heard that this I fell silent, scared. Emsfort a transit camp where the Gestapo housed male prisoners had become an infamous name in the Netherlands. It stood for atrocities and starvation, and it was my next destination. I had heard stories and rumors of Amersfoort, the cruel treatment of the prisoners by the SS commanders had made the camp notorious, deprived of freedom of action or expression. Many of the under- fed and the weak had broken under the viciousness of the guards. I had heard about men made to stand at attention long and excruciating hours in all sorts of weather, or they were forced to crawl on their belly while guards jumped on their back and flailed away at them with the butt of a rifle. Those punished for camp offenses, escapees, and those sentenced to death, I had heard, endured solitary confinement in the bunker. So outside the prison that morning, as we marched under heavy guard to the station and onto a train, the sunny skies contrasted with my fears. I was prepared for such a transfer, and I had written two short letters, one to my family and one to my sweetheart. When the train slowed at a road crossing, I managed to throw them out the window praying as I did that someone would find them and forward them to the addresses indicated. They were indeed found, I later learned, and sent on. Mies still treasures hers. 
At Emsford, we marched off the station, crossed the main road from Utrecht, and turned into Lan Lan nineteen fourteen, where I caught the first glimpse of the hellhole in which I would spend my months. Our group halted in front of the gate, and I could see the high double barbed wire fence, the watchtowers with guards and machine guns, the searchlights, and the guards patrolling dogs. Uh, it was a menacing and frightening view. Hans Poulet, a guard snapped out. I stepped forward, and he shoved a strip of cloth with a number on it into my hand. It was the last time the guards used my name. From then on, I was number 9238. I didn't know it at the time, but this combination of numbers would be engraved on my soul for the rest of my life. At the clothes warehouse, I stripped and gave up all my possessions. Then, besides a jacket, an old pair of military trousers, and some underwear, I received the red trimmings that indicated I was a political prisoner. Warden, or wooden shoes and mess gear completed my outfit and I was given curt instructions. Shave yourself clean, all over, quickly, and sew those numbers onto your clothes immediately. It was a depressed group of men who moved toward Block X. Harsh commands and foul words followed every move we made. Chanel! Chanel! Quickly! Quickly! Everywhere we went, camp police called Capos guarded us. They were prisoners like us, but were armed with wooden sticks to keep the other prisoners in line, and we felt they had sold their souls to the devil. We stumbled along in our wooden shoes, trying to hold on to our gear and kept keep our trousers from slipping down to our ankles. Inside, I secured an upper bunk that I hoped would offer some privacy in the evening hours. The first Real test came during evening roll call at 6.30. Guided by experienced prisoners, we blended into straight rows and columns and survived the headcount. I managed to escape the beatings of the camp police, except for one whack which left me with a sore upper right arm. Surprisingly, the food turned out to be acceptable, although hardly sufficient. I withdrew to my bunk as soon as possible deeply grateful to the Lord who had thus far sustained me and fell asleep during my evening prayer. The camp at the time included ten tar-coated wooden barracks, two sick bays, repair shops, a forge, and sheds for peeling potatoes or chopping wood. Each of the prisoners' barracks held some 600 prisoners. One group of prisoners was waiting for transportation to forced labor camps in Germany. A smaller group of so-called political prisoners was waiting for sentencing by the Gestapo court in nearby Utrecht, or the transportation to other concentration camps. On workdays, the first group was marched off to town where they worked under armed guard for local Dutch factories. It was a compromise in return for fairly easy labor they received good food at lunch and a comfortable place during the day. 
The second group remained inside the barbed wire fences to do menial work, clean the barracks, work in the repair shops, etc. This group, of which I was a part, wore a large red circle on the back of their jacket and on the right leg of their trousers. Several of these men had been in the camp for a long time already. Where, where possible, prisoners were used for work for which they qualified, serving as physician, dentist, barber, tailor, for example. Of all that I grew to fear in that camp, Katala, an SS deputy commander, was the worst. He was the very devil himself, and he vented his rage on us with vulgar invectives. His moods were unpredictable, and his furious actions were infamous. His nickname was the Executioner of Emersfurt, and his trademark was a kick in the crotch with his boot. I held my breath when I saw Katala with his dogs coming through the gate to take roll call, and I wondered what mood he was in. As he strutted in front of the rows of prisoners, we jumped to attention. Achtug, attention! Hatalug, de Uggen links, prisoners, eyes left, mitts of caps off, Uggen did us, eyes front, Abzahelen, count. The tension rose while his subordinates walked among us, counting and probing uh, for irregularities, and we all breathed a sigh of relief. When the numbers tallied and they reported back to Katala, satisfied. Apart from hunger, harassment, and exhaustion, it's amazing how we lived. Every day the sickly smell of laundry cooking on the stove, not just to clean it, but also to kill the lice, filled my nostrils. On Friday night, the Red Cross delivered packages of food, and on Saturday morning, the latrines stunk from the vomit and feces of those who ate too much and too fast. A few hours later came the pugnant odor of Lysol as the barracks staff cleaned up the mess. Petty thievery, a slice of bread saved for tomorrow, or some cigarettes saved for bartering, was commonplace, yet degrading and frustrating. The unnerving sound of the firing squad might greet us at dawn, and often we stood for hours in the Rose Garden, a barbed wire enclosed area, when something displeased the SS officers. In sharp contrast to the scenes of misery, I remember one clear spring morning as we stood motionless for roll call. We heard no sound except for the movement of the SS guards, counting under their breath. Then suddenly, a caroling lark took off from the surrounding woods into the sky, and its unrestrained cheer swept over the two hundred prisoners in the square. No one dared look to look at for it, let alone follow it on its freedom ride, but we all heard it and took it as a symbol of liberation and light. One evening, I felt a tap on my shoulder and turned to recognize an elderly prisoner from my barracks. Estius was a church elder from Kempen, and several of us had gathered on his upper bunk in the corner for evening prayers during the first weeks. 
I heard you're an assistant minister, he said. I confirmed it, and he told me, then you must lead us in our Easter worship. I was stunned, but I accepted the challenge in order to maintain my cover story. Fortunately, I had attended our pastor's confirmation class and had memorized the catechism and the supporting parts of scripture. So that Easter morning, behind the barbed wires of a concentration camp, I led a clandestine worship service of a small group of prisoners, and together we celebrated the victory of our Savior and God over death and the grave. Unexpectedly, one day, a runner from the camp administration brought an order for me to report for interrogation. The old fears flared up again. Was my case not closed after all? When I reported to the administration, I learned that Obersturben Führer Professor Nielis, the SD High Commander for Religious Affairs, wanted to interrogate me. An SS guard took me to an office building, and with clicking of boots and a Hal Hitler, he ushered me into a large room where a strongly built man sat behind a desk. Come in, sit down, he said as he pointed to a chair. I tried to make as little noise as possible with my wooden shoes as I headed toward the chair. You are Pillay, assistant minister of the Dutch Reformed Church in Harlem, he stated, referring to a file in front of him. Tell me, how did you get involved in this mess? he asked rather kindly. I immediately thought of the many warnings of my resistant friends about the so-called friendly approach of the Gestapo, so I tried to choose my words carefully. Incredibly, his kindness and interest appeared to be genuine. When I stuck to the story he must have already read from my file, he began to ask about my theological education. I threw in a remark about the many differences on theological issues between professors, how those issues at present were dividing the Dutch Reformed congregations, and how the occupying regime would certainly welcome the divisiveness. To my great relief, he picked up the lead and began a long monologue on how Christians should obey God as their ruler in matters of faith and church, and obey the government in societal matters. After all, God expressed his will in society through the government, he told me, even through an occupying force like the Romans. Didn't even St. Paul accept that? I was amazed at his intimate knowledge of the matter, but I had heard this argument often enough to let it pass. Your silence tells me you don't agree with me, he finally remarked, smiling. But when all this messy war business is over, you'll be amazed at the great society we will build together. His confidence that we would both be around to enjoy that future was reassuring and amusing at the same time. He closed the file, and I jumped to attention again. He called the guard and dismissed me with a few non-committal words. With a silent prayer of thanks in my heart, I breathed a huge sigh of relief as I entered the camp gate again. After a few days at Amersfoort, to my surprise, I experienced less random cruelty and better food than I expected. Later I learned that the Dutch commander of the Red Cross in Amersfoort, Mrs. Lois van 
Overrim had achieved a sort of truce with the SS commander of the camp. She was a fairly young lady, known to the prisoners as the Angel of Amersfoort. She had demanded regular inspections of the camp and its hygiene, as well as personal access to the prisoners and to the sick bay, etc. She conjoled, threatened, and blackmailed the SS commanders so effectively that they apparently decided to give in on in to her d demands. Every Friday afternoon, she personally accompanied the trucks with the food packages, and we saw her chatting am amicably with the SS officers, meanwhile making sure all the packages were distributed among the prisoners and not to the guards. She also talked with the prisoners in charge of the camp to get inside information directly, and this resulted, at least for the time being, in more humane treatment. We still endured the brutal beatings and punishments and the long, exhausting hours of standing to attention. The unpredictable executions continued, but the extreme violence and starvation that made life so unbearable disappeared. I quickly learned to make myself inconspicuous and to avoid most of the beatings. Then I was given an unexpected opportunity. The prisoner who acted as administrator of our barracks became ill with pneumonia and was taken to the sick bay for an extended stay. It resulted in chaos during the roll call that night and it took several hours to convince the SS guards that the total number of prisoners tallied with their numbers for our block. After the all-clear, most of the prisoners turned in to make the most of the few hours remaining till dawn. But I made my way to the block autist, the prisoner in charge of our barrack. He was responsible for its cleanliness, for order, and for strict observance of the SS directives. The chaos that the evening before had left him desperate so when I volunteered to take on the job of Barak's administrator, he jumped at the offer. Within a day, Block X had a clean administrative slate again and managed to stay out of that kind of trouble from then on. It was a demanding job, but relatively comfortable. I made a few good friends in both the Barak's and camp staff, and in a concentration camp, nothing beats the comfort given by good friends. This made it easier to cope with the daily harassment and cruelties of the SS guards. One chilly afternoon, I registered a large number of new prisoners to replace those who had left earlier that day. When his turn came, a shivering, fragile man in badly fitting camp clothes moved uneasily to my table. I recognized him immediately. He was Dr. J. Von Der Elst, the amenable principal of the high school I had attended, and where I had taken my university admissions exams. Like all prisoners, I was shaved bald, and he didn't recognize me until I introduced myself. Seven years before, he had registered me as his high school student. Now I was returning the compliment and sorry to be doing it. He was the last person I expected to see in a concentration camp. As principal, he had had the responsibility of keeping the school operating and out of trouble. 
and he went out of his way to achieve that. He regularly censored the school paper and the recitation competitions for bidding texts or poems he thought would provoke the Nazis. He stopped any activity that might attract their attention and bring on measures that would jeopardize the school. We young people, who yet had few responsibilities, thought he went much too far. Why in the world would this cautious man be arrested, I wondered. I registered him, and later that afternoon tried to make him as comfortable as possible under the miserable circumstances. That evening, when he was able to calm down a bit, he told me the story. Some days before, Gestapo agents came to the school and demanded the names and addresses of the boys who would leave the school in a few weeks after final exams. Dr. Van Dersels knew the list would be used to deport the boys to Germany to force labor camps, so he flatly refused. The Gestapo arrested him on the spot, along with the chairman of the school board, and sent them both to concentration camp. The moment of truth had come to this overcautious and prudent administrator, the choice to give in and bow to the enemy or to stand up to them and refuse. He stood up for his convictions and accepted the consequences, and here he was, a shivering and tiny man, yet so large and courageous. I hadn't been there very long when a tall, robust prisoner stopped me in the sandy corridor between the barracks. They tell me that you are Polet from Harlem. I am Schaffermann from the Harlem Police Headquarters. We're in this together. I was shocked. What happened? I asked him. How come they arrested you? I didn't mention any police contacts in my story. I'll tell you all about it after the evening meal, he said softly. Later, he told me he had been on duty that night and had secretly contacted Mrs. Von Ach. She asked him to find a way to warn Von Regen of his impending arrest. When the Gestapo called on him that Saturday evening after Von Regen and I were arrested, they told him denial wouldn't help, that Mrs. Von Ach had confessed to asking him, and that I had confessed to receiving a note at the Leichenkuppenstrat address. After hearing this, he realized it was probably the least damaging way out of the mess, and the ten-boom connection wouldn't surface that way. So he admitted he alleged uh, part of it, uh, alleged part in it. Uh, Schaupmann was quite matter-of-fact about it all, accepting what happened as a calculator risk gone wrong. I hardly knew what to say. I was hardly, I was highly embarrassed and grateful at the same time. It was the first of many get-togethers during which we got to know each other quite well. He was quite a bit older than I, and became a sort of father figure to me as well as a friend. As a barracks administrator, I had sufficient food, and I could give him my Red Cross cigarettes to exchange for extra food. When our blot altest, the prisoner in charge of other prisoners, was unexpectedly included in a prisoner's transport, I told the Lager Altust, the prisoner in charge of the entire camp, that Schopmann was a police officer who might qualify to become our new 
Locke, Altus, he took the suggestion, and from then on, Shelpman ruled Block X with a fair but strict rule. As his barracks administrator, I slept in the same corner, and with my frequent trips to the camp administration, I could pass on advice, advance warnings of suspicious SS activity, which usually meant unscheduled inspections or roll calls. After my release, I took a letter from uh, Shopman to his wife in Harlem, along with a charcoal portrait of him sketched by a fellow prisoner. She was deeply moved. Even under the sad circumstances, I could cheer her up with the news that he was going, or he was doing quite well, and he was optimistic about his future. After the war, however, I learned that Shopman didn't survive. He was sent to a concentration camp in northern Germany and was finally liberated, but unfortunately he died in a British field hospital from the hardships he experienced. In mid-July of 1944, I was asked to join the Shrubestub, the camp administration, where they kept an accurate and up-to-date record of the movement and count of all the prisoners in the camp, the lager of Dest Tron von Dillar operated from there. He had the awesome responsibility of representing all the prisoners to the SS commanders. A mistake by him, such as an incorrect report or roll call numbers or a remark or behavior uh, that displeased the SS staff could carry severe punishment for thousands of prisoners. But he was also our intermediary and often the intercessor on behalf of the prisoners, so he had to remain in good standing with the camp commanders. By maintaining a severe but just discipline, he somehow managed to walk that tightrope successfully. In the camp administration, we had to provide him almost hourly with exact information on the numbers of prisoners and their whereabouts, and we could do that only by meticulously keeping our own lists and by a daily check with the barrack numbers. These served as the basis for the barracks totals at roll call and for provision of food rations, Red Cross packages, etc. My promotion to deputy camp administrator brought definite advantages. The administration was a kind of halfway house for SS staff. They stopped by frequently to announce unexpected roll calls or transports or to pass on new orders or lists of prisoners coming in or leaving, and they often brought visitors they wanted to impress. For them, the camp administration served as a model of a well-run camp, and that included the prisoners who worked there. For me, it meant decent military clothes and shoes and permission to let my hair grow into a crew cut. Although offered a bunk close by, I chose, with permission of both the Lager Altist and Block Altist, to keep the quarters in my old barrack. My friends were there, and I could share the news and miseries of the day each evening with them. While working in the administration office one day, I intercepted a list of prisoners scheduled for transport to a forced labor camp in Germany. As I scanned it, I stopped, shocked, and went over it again. 
There it was, Palais, number 9238. There was no further information, and no reasons were given. Apparently, I had served my time, but Nazi Germany definitely was not in my plans for my life. As soon as possible, I excused myself and went to the doctor's offices. A friend, Dr. Hustra, was on duty, and I told him about my problem. Report to sick parade for doctor's check tomorrow morning, he ordered with a smile. The next morning, he had a small form filled out and ready for a signature by the head camp doctor, claiming that I was diagnosed with tuberculosis. It was well known that such patients were not welcome in Germany, and this information would, like everything else, find its way into the SS files. A few weeks later, on August 15, I received a list of prisoners to be released the next day, and there it was again, Poulet, number 9238. I stared at it and read it over and over through clouded eyes, as so on. August 16, six months after I was arrested, I walked out of the gates of the concentration camp in civilian clothes and carrying many letters and messages for families of the friends I had made in this place. I headed for freedom. Many of the bad experiences of those months have faded with the years, but the good memories remain, the shared feelings, the mutual despair and hope, the comfort and help, the joint efforts to minimize the damage done by the SS, above and beyond, all human comfort, however, was the continuing presence of my Father in Heaven sustaining me. That inner peace made me invulnerable to the constant abuse by the forces of evil. Next time, Chapter 14, Their Darkest Winter, Their Sweetest May.